Hey friends, you are listening to the Grace Story Church podcast. To learn more about Grace Story and how you can get plugged into our community, visit gracestory.church. Amen. Guys, we are continuing through our study through the book of Romans. Today we are going to be in the last little bit of Romans 9 and the first few verses of chapter 10. So it's Romans 9, 30 through Romans 10, verse 4. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear witness, for I bear them witness, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For by ignorant of the righteousness of God, being ignorant of the righteousness of God, and seeking to establish their own, They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the word of the Lord. Romans chapter 9 verses 30 through chapter 10, verse 4. 9, verse 30 through 10, verse 4. You guys turn there and we're going to dig right in. Welcome to second winter, by the way. Full spring was nice while it lasted, right? And now we have second winter. It snowed at my house today. Did anybody else see snow? Man. So a famous Christian author, his name is A.W. Tozer, he's been dead for a while now, one of those guys, has this famous quote, and I want you to hear it. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So I'm not trying to be clever here, but... I've always heard this quote and thought that it's off by like one-tenth of one degree, right? It's so close. But I think the reality is that the most important thing about us, if we're really trying to be real about this, the most important thing about us is not what comes in our minds when we think about God, but what comes into God's mind when he thinks about us. I think that's the most important thing about me, right? It's not what comes into my mind when I think about God, but it's what comes into God's mind when he thinks about me. It's not my perception of God. It's God's perception of me. That's the most important thing about me. And so that leads me to a question and one for you to consider. What comes into God's mind 
when he thinks about you. What comes into God's mind when he thinks about you? And how do you know? How can we make sure that God thinks well of us? How can we make sure that God, the creator of the universe, thinks well of us? And in this passage, Paul's going to begin to deconstruct a little further Israel's way of trying to be sure about this and contrast it with the way that Christ presents to us. How does Israel try to be sure that God thinks well of them? And how does Christ present to us that we should do this? Paul's going to lay that out in, in these verses. And the first thing that he wants to get across is that it's really important that we not be confused about this. We shouldn't be confused about what righteousness is all about. And I think that's the definition for righteousness in this case is having God think well of us right if we're righteous that means God thinks well of us God has approved us God accepts us when God thinks of us he thinks good and accepting and pleasing kinds of thoughts that's what we want and in this passage Paul's going to tell us look don't be confused about how to do that listen to what he says about the Gentiles here he says what shall we say the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness or the law of righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. So we must not be confused about this. We have a situation here where there's an adventure in missing the point, right? Israel is running after this. They're running after trying to make sure that God thinks good thoughts about them. They're running after trying to be sure that God is pleased with them. They're running after trying to be sure that God thinks well of them. And yet Paul says they never get there. They never arrive. And yet the Gentiles who have made no effort in this direction, the Gentiles who have not pursued this, the Gentiles who have not tried to please God, the Gentiles who have not tried to make sure that God thinks well of them, they've actually obtained that. So Israel pursues righteousness, they never get there, but the Gentiles do not pursue righteousness, and yet they have it. And what is Paul trying to get across here? He's trying to say, look, there's a reason this is the case. It's because that righteousness that Israel's pursuing comes from the law and the righteousness that the Gentiles are receiving comes from faith. And the point is that the law is a great description, check this out, of the life that is produced by faith in God. But it's a terrible prescription for how to be accepted by God. Let me say that one more time. The law is a wonderful description of what a life looks like that's based on faith in God. But it's a terrible prescription for how to please God in the first place. 
And Israel approached God in this way. It's sort of like they went at him as though he had some sort of cosmic report card. Here's the law with its hundreds and hundreds of items on the checkbox. And what I want to do in order to please God is come before him with as many check marks as possible. It's like old school Sunday school. You guys remember the envelopes with the stars on them? Did you attend? Did you bring your Bible? Did you bring a friend? You guys ever see those? And the goal is to get three stars every single Sunday, right? And then Israel's trying to approach God in this way. They want 2,436 stars to make sure they've checked off every single law. And then God will be pleased with me. The more stars I have on this list, the more God's going to like me. Or at least the better God's going to treat me. Or at least in comparison with everyone else, the more God's going to like me. Somehow or another, I'm going to put God at my, my disposal in some sort of way here. By getting all these stars, I'm racking up points in my relationship with God. And Paul says that is an adventure in missing the point. That's not what the law is for. That's not what the law is for. The law is not about how to make God love you. The law is a gift. And it shows us how to live in such a way that God's love can flow through us. It's a manifesto on how to live a life of love in the midst of neighbors. You know that saying, it's from a, I can't remember the philosopher right now, but this saying that hell is other people. The law is how to make that untrue. For you as a member of other people, not to be hell, right? Obey the law and you'll be relatively pleasant to be around. You'll be a blessing. That's the idea of the law. It's a life that exhibits faith. It's not a life that earns favor. And because Israel couldn't quite get their head around this, they missed the boat on righteousness. So don't be confused, but also don't be, don't be tripped up. Because it's not just the case that you can miss the point. You can also be blinded by your pride. Look at verses 32 and 33 here. He says, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. And again, they're, they're running at God with the report card, right? And then he expounds on this. He says, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. And now he's going to conflate two different passages in Isaiah. He's going to bring them together to make one point. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so what Paul's trying to say here is that they are... <clears throat> They are stumbling over this stone that is Jesus Christ. And that's why they're unwilling to submit to righteousness by faith. In other words, what's happening is that these members of quote-unquote Israel, of ethnic Israel, are saying, what do you mean it's based on Christ? What do you mean God is going to be pleased with me because of what Christ has done? I don't, I don't need that. I've got the law. 
I have 2,433 stars, right? Why do I need Jesus? Line us up. Line us up, put us in order from the most stars to the least stars. That's what I want. I want God to line us up and choose the top 36. I want him to love me more because I please him more. I want him to treat me better because I live better. I want him to choose me because I'm actually superior at obeying him. That's what the law is for. The law is for me to prove my own goodness. Not to prove God's goodness. So they're stumbling over this cornerstone. And what is this cornerstone? It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's all that God has accomplished through Christ. It's a stumbling stone. It's a rock of offense. For those who seek to establish their own righteousness. For those who are trying to put God in their debt. For those who are trying to save themselves. For those who are trying to measure up. For those who see righteousness as a sort of intergalactic competition. Who can get the most stars? Where's my name? Where's my righteousness? And Paul says, look, of course, many who are part of Israel are not believing in Jesus. It's already prophesied here in Isaiah. It's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So don't be tripped up on the rock that is Christ. He's the cornerstone of our salvation. And and what Paul's doing here, he's playing on a temple metaphor. In other words, Jesus Christ is the foundation for the new temple that God is erecting in the church. All of us who trust in Jesus are being formed into a living temple. The place where God's glory dwells. The centerpiece of God's glory on the whole earth. And his goodness and his glory emanate from the church. But Jesus Christ is the foundation of that. But for those who don't believe, that same stone that serves as our foundation serves as a way for them to be tripped up as they're on a journey to establish their own righteousness. So don't be tripped up by the gospel. And then Paul's going to push this a little bit deeper. He's going he's to meddle a little bit more. Look at verses 1 through 3 here. He says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness. And again, he's talking about ethnic Israel. He's talking about his brothers and sisters in the flesh. I bear them witness that they have a zeal For God. And that's a good thing, right? But it is not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, 
they did not submit to God's righteousness. So Paul says, don't be ignorant. Don't be ignorant. This is a strong word, isn't it? We're, we're likely to take offense at this word. What do you mean ignorant? But what Paul's trying to say is, look, the, there's only one explanation for someone trying to establish their own righteousness. There's only one explanation for someone trying to mark up a list of righteous deeds to impress God. There's only one explanation for it. Only a deep ignorance of God's righteousness. Only a deep ignorance of the true nature of God's intrinsic righteousness could lead us to believe that we could somehow satisfy it on our own. Man, when we try to establish ourselves before God in this sort of report card manner, it's not just that we, that we overestimate our own righteousness, but we also we underestimate God's righteousness. God's righteousness is of a kind that not only can we not reach it and achieve it, but we can't even conceive of it. How could we possibly imagine that we might measure up? How could we possibly imagine that we might somehow make it impossible for God to judge us? How do we think we could set ourselves above? How do we think we could set ourselves beyond his ability to discern our sin? So don't be ignorant. But consider the righteousness of God. He is holy without fault. He alone, out of all of the beings in the universe, are unable to sin. Is unable to sin. He's unable to sin. Even the angels can sin. As we've seen, right? But God cannot sin because it is intrinsic to his character to do what is good and true and beautiful. It is who God is. So don't be ignorant. And finally, Paul just says, look, don't miss out. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. There's a lot of prepositions in this sentence, aren't there? A lot of prepositions. So he's the, he is the end of the law. He's the end of the law. Now this word end, we can get a little bit confused about what's going on with the word end. Does it mean the like the stopping point? Right? If, if, the, if a book is over, that's the end, right? We finish the last page and the end. But there's also the end in terms of the objective, right? The objective. So the, the reason that we're going a certain direction, it's the objective. The thing we're moving toward or the goal, right? That's the end. But there's also the idea of fulfillment, the end can be the fulfillment. And so what I think is happening here is that Jesus Christ is kind of like all three of these things wrapped into one. 
He is the end of the law. In other words, he's the, the end of the story, the end. The law is no longer, the long as the law is no longer relevant as a way of measuring our rightness before God. Our rightness before God is measured only by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So he puts an end to the law in that way. But he's also the goal of the law. He's the goal of the law. In other words, if we actually were to achieve the law, if we were to actually live according to its principles perfectly, our lives would look like Jesus' life. But he's also the fulfillment of the law. He has now accomplished everything that the law requires. He's done all of that. I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he did that perfectly through his life, death, and resurrection. So he's the end of the law. And that's what it means to be the end of the law. But now we've got a few more prepositions to deal with. He says he's the end of the law for righteousness. For righteousness. In other words, the law is fulfilled in Jesus Christ for the purpose of righteousness. In other words, Jesus accomplishes this. He achieves this. The result of Jesus' life is righteousness. He's accomplished that. And then he says this is to everyone who believes. So there are no exceptions. There is not a human being in the world who, if they place their faith in Jesus Christ, cannot be saved. This is big news. Remember, the... The people that Paul is preaching to, many of them were ethnic Jews who spent their entire life believing that the love of God was exclusively their own. And now Paul says, no, the love of God is for everyone, everyone who believes. There are no exceptions. So don't miss it. Don't miss out on real righteousness because you're caught up trying to establish your own counterfeit righteousness. Don't miss out on real salvation because you're caught up trying to establish your own counterfeit salvation. And I want to present some questions for your consideration just to consider whether you may be missing the boat when it comes to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Here's the first one. Do you find confession painful? When I say confession, I mean the practice of bringing our sin before God. The practice of agreeing with God that we have, in fact, sinned. And I think, you know, we practice confession every single Sunday as a church, and I doubt whether that's all that painful because it's general and corporate And we're all coming together with this agreement that, yeah, we're all sinners. We're in this together as sinners. But what about when it's personal and specific? What about when it's it's raw and recent? What about when it's habitual and frequent? Is confession painful? And if it is, it's probably because you have a tendency to justify yourself in your heart. 
That's what would make confession painful because justifying yourself in your heart is difficult when you're in the middle of agreeing with God that you're a sinner. Or agreeing with God that in this very instance you have sinned. So if, if you find confession painful and you may not have fully embraced the gift that is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that you're not a believer. I'm not saying that you haven't been born again. I'm saying that you're not enjoying the full benefit of the righteousness that's found in Jesus Christ. Here's the next one. Do you find yourself rationalizing? Rationalizing. If so, and here's what I mean by rationalizing. Like you, it's, kind of, it's kind of similar to the question of confession being painful, but it's when, when you have sinned and you realize you have sinned, you begin to sort of change the rules in your heart to make it so that what you did is actually fits into a loophole. Are you with me? Actually, if, if we just consider all the facts, then really this is actually fine. Or we, or we make other arguments to defend ourselves when we know intuitively that we're guilty. And I'm talking about before God, right? This is probably the symptom of a legalistic bent trying to gain control of your heart. It's a legalistic bent trying to gain control of your heart. Because once, once you're freed of legalism, it, truly there is nothing more lovely in this world than bringing your sin before God. It's like my favorite pastime, guys. Just being honest before God, like, it's so freeing. I don't, I don't want you to miss it. I want you to have this experience, like the liberating joy of bringing your sin to a God who knows it, sees it, foresaw it, and loves you and sent his son to die for you, knowing every moment of your life. He knowingly created a world where you would do that. When God spoke the world into existence, he was saying yes to a world where you would do the worst thing you've ever done. <laughs> Have you thought about that before? Listen, if God knew everything, does God know everything in advance? Raise your hand if you think God knows everything in advance. Did he know everything in advance before he created the world? That includes the worst thing you ever did. That includes saving you. So God, he said, let there be light, right? Knowing that you would do the worst things you've ever done. And knowing that Jesus' blood would satisfy his wrath on your behalf. That's why, like, confession is awesome. Because we align ourselves with the reality of the universe and the truth of God. And truth, look, truth and beauty and goodness are always aligned. There's no instance of truth that's not beautiful. There's no instance of truth that's not good. So when we align ourselves with God's truth, we feel his goodness. We see his beauty. 
Confession does that for us. It's really delicious. Confess your sin. Set aside rationalizing. Here's the next one. Do you find yourself sizing up other people? Do you find yourself sizing up other people? This is kind of like a, like a late stage symptom of latent self-righteousness. Because when we size people up, we're doing that to determine where we fit in. We're checking to see how many stars they have on their report card. right? And we're checking to see if we have more or fewer than them. So that we can either have contempt for them or we can have contempt for ourselves. Either way, this is a habit. This is a late stage habit of latent self-righteousness. We need to repent and come shed of it. We need to say to God, I repent of my self-righteousness. I repent of my desire to establish my own salvation. I repent of my desire to be good enough. I repent of my desire to measure up and I lay myself at the mercy of Jesus Christ. It's almost always done from a place of self-regard. And finally, what is the most common way that you tend to judge other people? What's the most common way that you tend to judge other people? And this is going to lead us to a step in the right direction. Because, check this out, our condemning others is usually the opposite side of the coin of congratulating ourselves or condemning ourselves. So what we're usually discovering is our preferred pathway to establishing our own righteousness. So what do you typically judge other people for? You can probably find there your own preferred pathway to establishing your own righteousness. And if you can turn those moments of judgment into moments of confession, you can come free of legalism. You can come free of self-righteousness. And, and for some of you, it's not self-congratulation. And I want you to hear this especially. Legalism does not just mean patting yourself on the back. It can also mean whipping yourself on the back. It doesn't just mean propping yourself up. It can also mean beating yourself down. Those are both sinful responses to the gospel of Christ. And we need to confess. We need to confess I've weaponized the law in order to build myself up or I've weaponized the law in order to beat myself down. Instead of what Paul calls us to do, Look at verse 3. Instead of being ignorant of the righteous of righteousness of God and seeking to establish our own righteousness, we should submit to God's righteousness. Submit to God's righteousness. Well, how do we submit to righteousness? 
Well, we lay down our own weapons of war, the law, where we're trying to establish our own righteousness, and we submit to the reality that God has established his righteousness in Jesus Christ. And that can be ours only by faith. And if we can trust in Jesus, if we can take every claim that we have to righteousness, every claim that we have to meriting, earning God's favor, and we can just throw it in the burn barrel and place all our faith instead in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now we've submitted to God's righteousness. So submit. Submit to the righteousness of God. Man, some of the stars on that report card are beside things that we are very proud of. Some of the stars on that report card are beside things that really make us stand out, that really set us apart from others, that really establish us as somebody that really spotlight our uniqueness. But none of that, none of that moves the heart of God to love us one iota more than he already loves us on the basis of his son, Jesus Christ. And I want to be clear about this because whenever we talk about the love of God in Christ, there's a certain kind of Christian that starts to worry whether God actually loves them, right? Does God actually love me or does God only love Jesus, but I can get in on that if I trust Jesus, right? But we can rest knowing that God loves us as individuals. He loves you for exactly who he created you to be. God did not have to create billions and billions of human beings. He did not have to make us all utterly unique. He did not have to create a world of nearly infinite variety where we still discover new species from time to time. This many thousands and thousands and thousands, some people say millions of years into this project, right? God didn't have to do that. So why did he do that? Because within all of that variety, God displays his glory it's, 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 it's radiated uniquely in everything that he's made, and especially in every human being he has made. And he loves you. He loves exactly who he created you to be. And in Christ, in Christ, your rebellion is put down. And you can be restored to a relationship of love and acceptance, friendship with the God who made you. So submit. Submit to the righteousness of God in Christ. Trust that he loves you and return to him. Return to him for the sake of the one who died to make it possible. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. I pray that every person under the sound of my voice would repent of their own righteousness, repent of their own plan of salvation, and submit instead to the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. It's for his sake that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace Story Church podcast. For more resources and information on our church, visit gracestory.church.